Welcome back to the Global Greek Influence Podcast. I'm Panagiotta Pimenidou. To be up to date with news from the Global Greek Influence Podcast and suggest your topics, subscribe, like, and review the Global Greek Influence Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM, and four more podcasting platforms. You can contact the Global Greek Influence through the podcast Facebook and Twitter accounts, the podcast website, globalcreekinfluence.com, and LinkedIn page. Renewable energy, including hydrogen, has raised some controversy in our societies, including its feasibility and resilience. I spoke in March this year with Yorgo Hedzimarkakis, the Secretary General of Hydrogen Europe, on the future and leadership of the hydrogen economy in Europe. Today, with my guest, Kostadinos Papaloukas, who will discuss Greece's and EU's sustainable energy approach with a focus on hydrogen economy, transitioning from a fossil fuels economy to a renewables one, how and if energy resilience can become a key actor of the EU's Greece's and Cyprus geopolitics. Kostadinos Papaloukas is an energy policy expert, as well as one in negotiations, oil and gas business, geopolitics of energy. Kostadinos is now the coordinator of the National Hydrogen Committee at the Ministry of Environment and Energy. Kostadinos led the works of a joint task force between the Greek Ministry and the U.S. Department of Energy to jointly develop a regional carbon capture, utilization and storage concept in the Hellenic Republic with the participation of several Greek energy corporations. He has also been a researcher at the House Energy and Commerce Committee at the United States House of Representatives, the Mida de Gansberg Center for European Studies, organizer of the geopolitics of energy in the Eastern Mediterranean, implications for European energy policy study group at Harvard University. Welcome to the show, Kostadine. Thank you so much uh, for uh, the invitation. Uh, it's been a while since I heard, uh, you know, what what uh, I've been doing in the last few years. So allow me first to thank you for this opportunity, and I would actually like to congratulate you on 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 your initiative. Uh, both uh, podcasts and and live links uh, are quite essential in our times when everything you know, when time is limited. And and I don't see this form of communication uh, developed in Greece comparing to other countries. So congratulations. Thank you, Kostadine. Indeed, sometimes it might take um, an introduction, a reminder of what we've done in life. Sometimes we might lose track of all these things when we are constantly involved in different projects. So, so today we will be focused on uh, your expertise in regard to various aspects that uh, might trigger society's uh, challenges. Let me start with the key points for Greece to achieve a sustainable strategy and renewables economy. We have recently seen on the news, especially in Greece, partly because it's a European Union strategy as reflected on the Green Deal to turn towards renewable energy sources and renewable energy systems for our future economy. What are the key points on Greece achieving a sustainable strategy and renewables economy? Thank you for your question. Um, first of all, uh, we need to understand uh, what, what a sustainable strategy includes and, and how do we develop an economy based uh, on renewables. Uh, there are, in my opinion, two ways to, to answer this question. 
The first one is following um, the, the, the so-called bottom-up approach. For example, back in um, 2019, we put together our new National Energy and Climate Plan, also known as ESEC, which included several new elements, and, and it was pointing towards a, an ambitious front-loaded decarbonization strategy uh, of our energy mix, uh, the development of, of renewables along with uh, with the development of our electricity grid, uh, interconnections with other countries, interconnections for our islands, uh, the development of, of our natural gas grid, uh, and, and, and several other important elements that uh, touch uh, vertically our entire national uh, energy spectrum. Uh, this effort was important, and, and it's, it, it's, it was built on a detailed mapping, I would say, of what we got and where do we want to reach. Then you have uh, the second approach, following a top-down approach. As, as you mentioned, um, with, you mentioned the, the, the Paris Agreement, the Green Deal. Uh, so some, someone could say that this is a, a derivative from all these uh, global or EU-based agreements where you get the goals like set from the top and then you try to achieve this goal by trimming your sales accordingly. Uh, both approaches are equally important. So now going back to your question, what could be the key points uh, for achieving a sustainable strategy and renewables economy? So I would balance between the, those two approaches. First, I would start mapping with uh, you know, what we have. For example, do we want to have a renewables economy? Then the question is, how fast uh, does Ito and Hepno at the end of the year should move forward with upgrading their grids to be able to support the scale-up re on renewables, smart, smart grids, um, the further development of our energy exchange, and so on. So our country has a great potential for solar and wind, both onshore and offshore. Um, we have some world-class uh, uh, companies investing in the sector. Uh, PPAs are, are taking off, but we need to take into account what are the obstacles hindering our way forward. Then I would try to answer realistically, what does sustainable strategy mean? Yes, we, we, do, we do want to, to reach our goals uh, ASAP. Um, apply, for example, uh, circular economy principles across our national economy. And, and we want to, to turn our backs to a fossil fuels-based uh, economy, but always we need to, to cross-check with facts. What are the fuels that we actually need? Uh, what are the ones we got? Uh, and how are we going to navigate safely towards 2030, 2040, and 2050? Don't get me wrong. Uh, I just want to point out that we spent 150 billion euros in the last 10 years for fossil fuel imports, while we did minimum things to at least minimize the dependence on, on, on the imports uh, from countries that use energy as a weapon. While in the European Union, we discuss the Green Deal and how we can transition towards a greener economy, towards a more sustainable economy, at the same time, we have various fossil fuels projects happening around the Mediterranean Sea, which do not only regard Northern African countries, but also the Eastern Mediterranean countries such as Greece and Cyprus. So could existing fossil fuels projects and investments, especially at the Eastern Mediterranean, hinder the EU's transition to its Green Deal integration? 
That's a great question. Um, when we talk uh, about existing fossil fuel project in the Eastnet, we probably mean the gas fines in Israel and Egypt and whatever Cyprus will bring on the table, at least for, 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 for now. We should be skeptical about everything that might hinder our energy transition, but we have to be able to inject again a node of realism and also identif identify uh, double standards whenever or if applied. Um, let's, let's take, for example, Germany, uh, who has been the leader of renewables uh, in, the, in the previous European Green Wave uh, through its uh, uh, energy vende, and also leads uh, the effort of developing a strong European renewable hydrogen economy. So what does it stop a country like Germany to push forward a controversial project like Nord Stream 2? I don't even want to touch the existential debate of, of uh, launching Nord Stream 1 at the first place. So when we are so heavily dependent on gas that flows from Gazprom's pipelines and reaches our industrial players at a price that is not easy to compete, so I guess you first try to minimize this impact, yes, with LNG liquidity, and then perhaps develop our in-house resources. And then you move to step two, uh, where you step away from using gas extensively in your economy. Not because uh, you love or you hate natural gas, but because you have already made it possible to replace a big portion of it, like uh, either with hydrogen or, or renewable gases. Uh, so when, when you are not there, uh, I would dare to say that I would even keep coal personally in the mix as a reserve or as a storage load and only with the use of carbon capture, of course, to absorb the emissions. So once I have my own gas fields, then I can get rid of coal. Once I have a surplus on renewable gases and the demand is there, I can move forward to a hydrogen economy and get rid of natural gas. So going back to your question, uh, Yoda, EastMed's East mission, the Eastern Mediterranean's mission, was, uh, from what I remember, it was to create a, a new uninterruptible source of, of natural gas to satisfy the, the European demand uh, and help Europe diversify its sources. More specifically, um, provide the member states of the Union with enough leverage when dealing with the traditional powerhouses of natural gas. I believe that this window is closing down, especially after the, the decision of uh, cutting off uh, investments on natural gas projects. So I see here an asymmetry in, in the European policy because all the heavy industrial European countries have consumed billions and billions of tons of natural gas and the Eastern and Southeastern Europe has its grid undeveloped. So why would Greece take the heat for not developing its gas pipelines when the rest of Europe has been doing that decades ago? However, I need to know here that, you know, every decision comes down to numbers. Is the EastMed gas competitive? Uh, what would be the landing price of, of EastMed gas arriving from the Egyptian terminals or any pipeline connecting EastMed to Italy or the Balkans? If the numbers don't add up, then I don't think we need to worry about Oilers against Fit for 55 and vice versa. But I have to highlight that, in my opinion, for each nation, energy security should come first. Given this balanced approach, and especially when it comes to transitioning towards a more sustainable energy sector, 
what are the crucial parameters in transforming a fossil fuels-based economy into a renewables one? Because what I understand is that what we are aiming for the near and immediate future is to have a mix of different energy technologies and different energy sources. This is another great question. Um, I think that my favorite crucial parameter in transforming a fossil fuel-based economy into renewable ones is to stop alienating the energy majors from, from this energy transition. Uh, the big energy corporations are the ones that, you know, they, they develop the capacity to bring energy solutions to the world for decades, and they're entitled to, to continue to do so in the years to come. Instead of threatening them with carbon taxes and bullying them on whether natural gas would be the transit fuel or if blue hydrogen is okay or not, I think we need to encourage them to take part of this, to take part in this great energy transition uh, and build solutions either on synthetic fuels, green kerosene, and so on. Because if we manage to have a big company to, to become a part of this uh, energy transition, the, the impact will be way bigger than trying to build the, the energy transition only on startups and uh, policymakers who think through their narrow scope lens. Apart from that, I would also like to highlight the importance of uh, transportation. We tend to talk about uh, decarbonization and so on, and, and we, we tend to, to, to focus on uh, electricity generation. But we always forget that electricity is just a fraction of the energy consumed worldwide. Once we have a greener transportation system with uh, electric vehicles and hydrogen heavy duty vehicles or greener maritime sector, and then the impact would be stronger. And then we can say that we can take the next step. Having seen that you were involved in multinational negotiations, also between the Greek state and the United States, um, where even different corporations were involved, what are the main difficulties you face during such multinational negotiations among a joint task force? And... Could this be extended, for example, to any such negotiations that the Hellenic Republic might have to go through with national corporations? Okay. So one of my favorite books back in my Boston time was the 3D negotiations of David Lacks and, uh, and uh, Sebenius, James Sebenius. Uh, and I used it to teach uh, my students back in my time in, at the university. Well, the three dimensions of a successful deal-making strategy are, A, what do, you, what do you do at the table? Two, what do you write at the board? Which means, how do you craft a good deal design? Uh, and the most important uh, is the third one. What do you do away from the table? So this is where you need to bring some uh, basic principles of entrepreneurship in the process. Now, let's try to, to answer your question. Um, you need, I think you need to understand the mechanics and, and draft the, the, the schematic diagram of, of the decision making. Then you need to map all the interests from different entities and, 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 and first create the trust that you are in a position to generate um, added value and, and then split it in a, in a just way. 
you mentioned the, the collaboration, and it was not negotiation because we are we were asking in that uh, in that uh, scheme uh, as uh, we we were asking for uh, technology uh, support. So um, we 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 asked the technical assistance uh, on a particular topic uh, where the states were are way ahead from from any other European country. So what what I did, I I I first developed a, a policy paper that I wrote in English, so that they know, like the, the U.S. side would know where we stand. We didn't want a, a CCUS, for example, concept based on uh, oil recovery and so on on the EUR. So we wanted the CCUS. Uh, with a European twist, where utilization would play a role and we would find the best way to reach uh, Prinos as a storage site. Then I had to deal with the Greek entities and align the interests. So I had to break down the discussions into two different groups, where the one would be focused on the carbon capture and like the technology, strictly the technology, and the other group focused on the way to transfer the CO2 to, to, to the storage site. So I'd say that a good negotiator, a good negotiator, and a music composer uh, are pretty much the same thing. Uh, they should know who's playing and when and for how long. And and the same happened during the IPCI process, uh, and it's an ongoing process uh, for the hydrogen projects, where you have a DigiCom on the one side, the coordinators, the member states, with the task force and the steering committee. And then the companies that you would like to accelerate and position them in, in one of the waves, it's, it's, it's a mess. Uh, it's something like, you know, just music. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. You do, and which leads me to my following question. But let me underline one thing here that when we talk about IPCIs, this uh, acronym stands for the Important Projects of Common European Interest. And uh, as far as we know, Greece has officially, as a country, submitted five projects and you have uh, 15 more that uh, are under consultation with the ministry at the moment before submission, correct? Well, the first part is correct. Uh, if, if I would, uh, I would say that, um, you know, the important project of common European interest is, uh, is, initiative, is an initiative The, from um, the European Commission, where we want to, uh, let's say, sparkle um, uh, development in uh, several industrial uh, value chains that would make Europe to be ahead. Uh, so one of the value chains is uh, microelectronics, the other one is storage, uh, the other one is hydrogen. Uh, the difference between hydrogen IPCIs with all the other IPCIs is Um, the figures. I mean, uh, in the previous IPCIs, we had only research and development uh, and uh, perhaps uh, some projects that had first industrial deployment. But in this case, we have uh, infrastructure and infrastructure is raising uh, the cost uh, by adding a couple of you know, zeros in the figures uh, in the end. So um, this is what's uh, making the IPCI hydrogen important. We, as you, you said, uh, correctly said, we managed to place the first five projects. Uh, we pre-notified those five projects to, uh, to the European Commission. Three of them are part of the technology uh, um, wave, subwave, 
and that two of them are part of the uh, decarbonization through hydrogen um, subwave. Uh, now we stand at the point where Digicom uh, is uh, asking questions to the to the consortiums of the companies that uh, they 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 are involved, and uh, let's hope that by the end of the, the next one or two months we will have a notification uh, where all of the five projects will successfully uh, be included in the in the first wave. Uh, there are multiple waves that uh, are following. And uh, we are also, as you said, this is the, the, min the minus uh, correction that I would like to say is that 15 projects are with consultation with, uh, and, and they are participating in, man uh, in uh, uh, matchmaking processes with, uh, with other European companies. Uh, we are not sure uh, on the maturity of the next 15, uh, of, 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 of the whole, let's say, 15 uh, projects, but what we want to make sure is that they are aligned with the different thematics that they will follow. So uh, now we have, let's say, the technology, the decarbonization. We will have a following uh, wave on infrastructure, uh, a different wave on, on uh, transportation, and so on and so on. So we are trying to um, accelerate all the projects, help them uh, reach the maturity needed, so that they are ready when the times come to to have, let's say, the the the, the right um, analysis for their projects uh, for Digicom. Maybe we use a slightly different language because when uh, at the university we speak about a research project being under consultation, it means that it's under reviewing and it's under this uh, matching uh, process because. We have to understand, maybe the public needs to understand that most of these projects have a different number of partners and it might not be a single case of one company or of one organization only. At the same time, it is very important that you mentioned Greece's participation in APCIs to support its future hydrogen economy infrastructure because many people might start wondering where are where is Greece going to find the money to uh, invest in uh, hydrogen economy and towards the infrastructures needed. At the same time, during this period, there is a public uh, consultation regarding uh, the plans of the ministry, and I listened to one of your speeches where you mentioned that the approach of public consultation is going to be on an agnostic technology basis. So is a technology agnostic approach to the penetration of hydrogen technologies achievable when we, as the industry, as the market, have ready-to-launch products with their known advantages and disadvantages? Okay, first allow me to mention about, you know, how to finance uh, a hydrogen economy. That's, that's not something easy, not just for Greece, but any other member state right now, apart from the two or three, uh, that, uh, the, the traditional uh, powers of Europe. I think that uh, this is something uh, much complex, but there are many tools that we could use to finance the first uh, projects. Uh, and uh, this is what we need to do first. I mean, we have to separate the projects, make the case for each one, which has different characteristics, and try to uh, use 
uh, and leverage all the funds we can, uh, European or uh, national funds. And I think this is not something impossible. Now, uh, is, uh, now regarding the, the technology agnostic uh, approach, uh, when, when we say technology agnostic approach for the hydrogen technologies, what we mean is that we will allow all the technology providers uh, that produce renewable or low carbon hydrogen provide, let's say, their equipment to the project builders. What we care here the most um, is to bring the, the marginal cost of, of green or blue or turquoise hydrogen down. Uh, the technology might be there, but the price and the numbers, you know, if they don't adapt, then you have no future. So we need to set the guidelines uh, with uh, the, the guidelines that they are aligned with the EU policy and so on and the Green Deal. Um, and then we have to allow the market and the industry to work freely with no interventions. Uh, then we expect um, to see that the price of uh, hydrogen per kilo, uh, whether it's green or blue, will drop down and as, we, as we build the economies of scale. Uh, therefore, the, the cost of, of electrolyzers or fuel cells will drop down and we can break, you know, this uh, chicken and egg uh, issue. Uh, we need the supply, but we also need the demand and vice versa. So we need to uh, concentrate on building the case for an affordable fuel that will make, let's say, the, the car industries to develop their hydrogen vehicles. So. Uh, products with uh, known advantages and disadvantages, you said, in, in 10 years from now, either they will be taken over by other more efficient and cheaper products or they will be, let's say, you know, ruling the game. So the best should win, I guess. Now, is the hydrogen revolution feasible without businesses' openness to investing directly in cutting-edge innovation through technology transfer? And I mean that um, as most people in research or in the academia know, we mostly uh, do fundamental research and uh, companies and businesses are mostly interested beyond the proof of concept investments. So I'm wondering, are we going to have this breakthrough in the hydrogen technologies in order to surpass all these disadvantages we know of current hydrogen technologies? So I, I, I think I would need you here to clarify what do you mean exactly with saying openness? Because from what I, from what I know, uh, this has been... Uh, I don't think that this is the case for many occasions. I, let's, let's take a look at my, my favorite example that I keep talking about. Um, the, 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 you know, the case of Advent Technologies. They started from a local lab at the Patra University. They had some funding from a Greek bank at the beginning, and then they went on, on their own, and they raised 150 million from Nasdaq. So... What is the openness that are we talking about? I think we should have in mind this example, and I'm sure that there will be many others to follow. Uh, I think I remember when I when I, I traveled to Israel uh, a few years ago. Uh, we were talking to a business angel, and I remember him saying that, you know, here in Israel, we never start a, a business if we don't know where for which country this 
business uh, is uh, will be developed. So we will start, let's say, a company, and the market will be in Brazil or in China or so. I I don't know. I think that um, we should have you know in our mind this example uh, how you know a small company that starts in the lab could go and raise 150 millions if if the case is solid. And I think, you know, maybe if you go to the recent agreements that have been signed uh, as a part of the U.S.-Greece strategic dialogue, I think that you would see many of the characteristics that you, that you are looking for. Uh, that means to encourage uh, this uh, direct investment to, to innovation. Now, how could hybrid alliances positively affect the EU's energy resilience as a protagonist in strategic geopolitics? Most of us, I mean, even as citizens, beyond our expertise and our professional capacity, we will stand with the AUKUS uh, agreement. Uh, then we had two European Union countries extending their military collaboration, and I'm talking about the French-Greek uh, agreement. So we, uh, and we constantly see more hybrid alliances, even economic ones around the Eastern Mediterranean. So one thinks if several European countries will start to have bilateral or trilateral hybrid alliances, how could eventually you become a protagonist in strategic geopolitics and even become energy resilient? Oh, that's a that's a, dif- a difficult one, but I think I'll I'll, I'll try to be short. Um, when when you want to achieve a result, um, a collective result, I, I guess that you 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 need the highest degree of of, of, of symmetry. So hybrid alliances, uh, if you look at it through a game theory lens, then, then the answer is obvious. When, when something is, um, is changing, obviously you will, we will have winners and losers, right? So all the countries uh, want to make alliances to, let's say, co-generate the added value and then go to a nice split. Uh, so if... If you look at the strategy of different member states, uh, then you can see that EU doesn't really work the way it should do. Uh, you mentioned a couple of, uh, of examples. I would, I, I would also add the Spanish deal with Turkey or Germany's or France strategy in our region. There is a huge asymmetry from the, from the, tra- the traditional power of the EU. So, in a multipolar world where we need, uh, you know, um, to be very, we need to be very efficient. Um, so, e, well, now, no, you, you, you spoke about EU energy resilience, uh, which is, is, this is a different story. Um, well, let's take France, for example. France supports nuclear, of course. Germany wants to be a technology provider for hydrogen in the MENA region or, or the Gulf. So there, there, is, there is a bunch of different priorities and there is no one to do the fine tuning. I, I, I'm not pessimist, but I, I'm, just, I'm just saying that we could do much better if we had an EU common line in terms of security, foreign policy, and then energy resilience. So 
I, I don't see that uh, hybrid alliances, you know, they might be, you know, they, there might be an effort to be aligned with the overall strategy, but uh, there are several frictions uh, created from these alliances and it's not uh, efficient. So I, I don't see that, you know, these alliances hinder the energy resilience, but they delay the results. We have seen over and over again throughout history that uh, energy is directly linked to national and international policies and strategies. And of course, uh, geopolitics played a significant role in uh, many countries securing their energy resilience. Hence my question. In a sense, we see on one hand the EU promoting uh, the Green Deal while having bilateral, trilateral uh, projects on fossil fuels with third parties or with other European Union member countries. Uh, and we see the extent of, or for example, we've seen threats to the borders of the European Union, yet the EU does not really uh, have a unifying front towards all these challenges. Hence my question, if the hybrid alliances could have an impact on the energy resilience of uh, the European Union. But I think uh, you gave uh, some excellent points in uh, your answer. I have also asked um, Orestes Omran uh, about if Greece could become a renewables hub in the Eastern Mediterranean. Having been involved in uh, the hydrogen uh, committee um, at the ministry, or based on your energy expertise, could Greece become a hydrogen and renewables hub in the Eastern Mediterranean? And if yes, in what way? So uh, I would go back to the one of my favorite stories that I always mention, you know, the case of Portugal. Uh, I remember back in 2000, what was it, like 14, I was in the MIT at that time, and you know it was full of of, of posters about per Portugal succeeding, uh, you know, running the whole country on renewables. That was the you know 24 hours only renewables, and I was you know curious because I said you know who cares about Portugal? Like it's a small country, and here we are in the states. You know, it's uh, why so much uh, interest about the, the small and insignificant quoted, uh, you know, uh, Portugal. And, uh, you know, that, that was a, you know, a, a question that was, you know, puntering in my head for, for, for years. And then a uh, few years ago, I realized that Portugal is, you know, uh, doing fantastic work on uh, batteries, on electric vehicles, on renewables, or on offshore wind, or you name it. And now they are the first movers in, in hydrogen because they were the first that they, they signed uh, an agreement, a commercial agreement with the Netherlands on the production of green hydrogen and ammonia. So the story here is what happened uh, when one of the, you know, Portugal also was a part of the so-called peaks 
uh, when they suffer, you know, the financial stress and then so on. And then I found out from a, a good friend who was, uh, you know, representing Greece in, uh, in, in some fora in, in Europe for hydrogen, that a few years ago, there was a new wave of uh, policymakers, technocrats, politicians, that they emerged all the forums in, in Europe and they were start asking basic questions and they were making people feeling, you know, raising eyebrows. Uh, why do they ask these things? Why, why, why? So the, 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 there, there, is, there, is, there is no better answer from what, you know, it, it's one of my favorite uh, quotes is, work in silence and have your work making the noise. So, you know, just to go back to your question, Greece has a great potential for renewables. Greece has a great potential for everything. We just need to put everything in order first. And uh, once we work, uh, you know, um, and separate, we, we have to have, a, you know, a basic understanding and an energy policy that won't be changing uh, regardless of what government is on right now. It's what, what happens with the foreign affairs as well. So once we have a basic understanding, nobody will care who is running the government, which administration we have or not. It should be something that it is there and we will be working and we will be pushing until we achieve it. So, you know, we have a fantastic geographic location. So we are entitled to be a protagonist. Now you see Prime Minister Mitsudagis when in uh, Saudi Arabia recently, and they were, they were talking about an agreement so that Greece is the landing point of uh, hydrogen, low margin, margin, with low marginal cost hydrogen produced in, in Saudi Arabia. So it will be the landing point, you know? So, and, and another thing, we have also a very strong shipping community. Somebody will be, should be uh, transporting hydrogen to all the demand centers around the globe. So, there are so many things that we can do. Uh, I think we have we made some great progress during the last uh, two years, three years. We have to keep this moving, and we have to be able to think, you know, the bigger picture. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I, I have, you know, I can, I can speak for hours for this uh, kind of. It seems that fine tuning and um, laying solid foundations are key. Um, and then it wouldn't really matter what uh, the government in Greece is going to be. And maybe this is what we have been lacking for so many years to have some solid strategies towards important aspects uh, of our country. Mm -hmm. One final question, Kostadine. Cyprus is a country that has taken leadership uh, in collaborations at the Eastern Mediterranean, especially in the energy sector. How could Cyprus position, based on its collaborations at the Eastern Mediterranean, make it a strong geopolitical actor to resolve its national issues? Okay, that's, that's a, a fair question. Uh, but I'm afraid that the answer is not the one you would expect. So. First of all, I, I, I do not believe that Cyprus will ever be a strong geopolitical actor, uh, especially when there are no signs of changing, you know, mindset, uh, attitude, strategy, you name it. Uh, 
there has been a window. Why, 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 why do I have this approach? I mean, there has been a, a window of 10 years from the time, you know, natural gas or East Med uh, terms were first heard on the island. Um, just take Israel or Egypt and do the comparison. Look at look what they have achieved during those the last 10 years and what Cyprus achieved. Um, the, you know, the natural resources question in Cyprus has been politicized early on. And unfortunately, that was the end of it. Uh, I see that we have some new developments with ExxonMobil and so on, perhaps Total, but I still choose not to be optimistic. Uh, let's hope that I, I, I will be proven wrong. Uh, the window where Cyprus would have, let's say, an, an LNG export facility was lost because of several unjustified delays. Uh, the worst is that uh, I see that people celebrate um, in Cyprus because of the FSRU deal where, in, you know, instead of heavy oil, Cyprus will be burning, again, imported natural gas for the power generation. Egypt develops Zor in two years uh, or so, uh, and Israel enjoys, uh, you know, the benefits uh, for, from its discoveries for years now. So uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, I think that, um, I, I think that I don't see any way that uh, the, the, you know, those collaborations, you know, it's always to be and trying to, to be part of the game but I don't think that Cyprus managed to harvest the potential that it could. And I'm sorry about my pessimistic view. Um, actually, it's a realistic approach and uh, what we are not quite used to listen to as Greeks, even though this is uh, a podcast that anyone can listen to around the world is that we have not really learned to listen to the truth. And it's important to speak the truth because only the truth makes you better and it makes you focus on what you need to achieve, on what you need to work on. And I think what you mentioned about Cyprus, I wouldn't say that uh, uh, citizens in Greece think similarly. They mean, you mean that they see Cyprus as a, as a, you know, a case study of like a success story? I said that the Greek citizens uh, think similarly to uh-huh. the uh, Cypriot citizens. Uh, yeah. there, there are many similarities. Mm-hmm. One of the words that goes around a lot the past 10 years, even before the pandemic, was the word mindset. I think it's about uh, the Greeks, no matter where they live or in what country they live, to change their mindset, to become more realistic, uh, more hands-on, more practical, and uh, more optimistic uh, rather than pessimistic. It's not you get optimistic. Sorry, Yoda, but you get optimistic when you get results. When you see that your efforts, your strategy is proven on the right side. This is when you become optimistic. When you see, right? I meant, I meant optimistic not to be uh, over the clouds optimistic without uh, solid foundations. Agree. Correct. I agree. 
Thank you, Kostadine, for being here today and accepting the invitation of the Global Greek Influence Podcast. Yoda, thank you for this invitation. I would like to end with a happy note and say that you know, we have the potential. It's there. We just need to, I don't know, maybe update this mindset, right? Thank you. Thank you all for staying along this episode. Until next Sunday. Thank you.